1: Carol serves as the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, graduate of Trinity University and the University of the Incarnate Word, where she earned her master's in gerontology, a true conversation ender <laughs> at any cocktail party in America.
2: That's right. You know, we I share that in common with our upcoming guests. Uh, Katie Orlip. Kaylee Orlip, talking about hospice. Um, she, you know, prior to going on air, was mentioning that she could also stop a conversation with her line of work. Somebody says, Nothing what like do like aging do? and dying <laughs> yeah, is conversation exactly. killers. Well,
1: we're going to be talking about their book with Yana uh, Beecham, Living with Dying, a Complete Guide for Caregivers. And uh, for those who don't know much about uh, the way it all works and the way hospice works, you're going to enjoy that conversation. And I do mean enjoy. You get a lot of information out of it as well. Now, Carol, I have a question for you, because out in the real world, the business world, how do you tell if folks are disagreeing with you if they don't say it?
2: Well, you know, you actually gave me great insight from the Ohio State, as I have learned to call it.
1: The Ohio State (laughs) University.
2: and on how to tell if people are disagreeing with you, which I thought, if you're a family caregiver, if you're caring for someone or just, I don't know, anybody, uh, wouldn't it be nice if you could tell that automatically? I mean, is there a tell for that Right. Uh, besides him saying nope? And so <laughs> they were talking about how – think about complex emotions. Think about if you are sadly angry or happily disgusted, you know, oh, yeah, you know, you see somebody that you don't like and, and ooh, that, they stuck it to her, um, that kind of a thing. So we we mix emotions. So if somebody is disagreeing with you and, they're, and their face is, you know, how do you look at them and tell? So, okay, caregivers, here is your challenge. These are the three tells of somebody who... Who is disagreeing with what you're saying, even though they're not telling you that they are disagreeing?
1: And this may help you play poker. too. And this
2: may <laughs> help you play poker. Um, so, or with your children. So, a um, if they have a furrowed brow, all right. So, look at the for these three tells: furrowed brow, that means there's anger. A raised chin, that means there's some disgust there. <laughs> and tightly pressed lips which is contempt. So they studied hundreds of faces and asked questions. Um, The question that they were asking was... um, should this university raise tuition by thirty percent, well, who is going to agree with the thirty percent increase? So they nobody. Knew, and they knew nobody was agreeing with them, and they looked to see what were the expressions, and they found everybody did exactly the same thing. Wow. That was not the case for all emotions, but for the I disagree with you those three the furrowed brow, the raised chin, and the compressed lips were all there every single time so now um, I think we should all go out and see if that is true. We're going to go out there and and practice that. I have not had a chance to try this out myself.
1: A woman I know who uses Botox, administered by a physician, often will say, I'm really angry at you, but you can't tell because I've had Botox shots.
2: I know. I know. I've always worried about that. If you got Botox. Gets rid of the lines. Yeah, it's like um, if you change your handwriting and your handwriting reflects your personality. So if I change the way I make my S, does that mean I have a personality change? Interesting. (laughs) So and, and how do you cause do and that? Effect? I don't know. How we do you worry change? about these things.
1: Of course we do. So practice that. And pra- with kids, go- it'll work as well, All I'm right. Sure. Try it
2: with your kids. Try it with your loved one. Send us a note at, care- at wellmed at oh, I'm sorry, radio at wellmed.net. wellmed.net. Radio at wellmed.net. Let us know if you could tell somebody was disagreeing with you.
1: Next up, my wife and I had this exact conversation this morning because the kids sometimes eat breakfast, sometimes they don't. She tries to be sure they do before they get on the school bus. And, and my view is, if they're hungry, they'll eat breakfast. How important is it? Is it the most important meal of the day?
2: Well, gee, what we As learned... As we were taught. What, what we were taught and what we have learned is that the people that say breakfast is the most important meal of the day, or breakfast makes you smarter... Are actually the people that make Frosted Flakes and your local cereal. Wow! <laughs> so whatever cereal you're eating, whether it's Quaker Oats or you know corn anything flakes. corn flakes, you name it, Raisin probably <laughs> Tony the Tiger was involved in your research. Um, and so the question was, does it help you breakfast? We, off, we often hear it'll help you lose weight because you won't have these cravings throughout the day. So does breakfast help you lose weight? Well, the answer to that is that depends on what you eat (laughs) because if you're having really sweet yogurt and you've piled it up with granola – um, and you put chocolate chips on it mm. then wow does that sound like low calorie to you calories are calories calories in calories out, that's it's that's just it you got now you got to burn those or so, waffles with powdered
1: sugar and yeah, heavy syrup yes so
2: there and there's they had pictures in this article of a stack of pancakes from IHOP New York cheesecake pancakes from IHOP have 940 calories and 55 grams of sugar
1: in one serving
2: in one serving wow You know, 55
1: grams of sugar versus
2: versus you could eat four Oreo cookies for breakfast, which is only 266 calories. But now let's think about the nutrients in an Oreo cookie. So the answer is that the research has not been good. It has not been random control trials where most of the research was done on people who eat breakfast versus people who don't eat breakfast as opposed to assigning people to eat breakfast and assigning people not to eat breakfast randomly um, and then making sure – that they're having a healthy breakfast. So for me, I will tell you. You know, you you said if you're hungry, you'll eat. So for me, I find that if I eat a big breakfast, I can't exercise. So if I'm going to go for a run, if I'm going to do something that t- is athletic in nature, I can't eat breakfast until I finished. Otherwise, I just it's too. Your I don't feet know. my yeah, the pancakes go right to your feet. Um, and so I don't know. I don't know what that is. Um, but I also have low blood sugar. I will kill somebody by noon if I do not have breakfast sometime between when I run and noon comes. You need to feed me. But that's not true for everybody. My sister never ate breakfast, never ate breakfast her whole life.
1: Now, don't runners carbo-load, but is that the night before? That's a
2: serious runner. I'm talking about a little jog around the block. I am not talking about, you know, 20 miles of running. No, you carb up if you're really running. If you're just recreationally running, yeah, it doesn't matter.
1: So the answer is cereal makers made us believe breakfast is the most important meal of the day by our cereal.
2: By our cereal. So, you know, if you're hungry, eat. If you'll just, you know, eat healthy foods all day long, whenever fruits, vegetables, fiber-rich cereals, the fiber-rich, you know, my, my one of my sons <laughs> loves to eat bran in the morning, which is more fiber than I want. <laughs> um, but that's fiber and eggs. So, things, desserts masquerading as breakfast, like the high sugar granolas and the super sweet yogurts. Um, or choco wanna, cereals. Yeah. Yeah. Or any anything <laughs> that your children really love to eat as a snack is probably that's not exactly that That's exactly
1: right. <laughs> so, let's switch to doctors and other healthcare providers. You came across five myths. Physicians and others believe about meeting with patients.
2: Well, what's fun about this these myths is that this is actually a communication for physicians. So this is a communication that's saying, "Hey, physicians, guess what? We know what you believe, and it's wrong. And we're gonna we're gonna give you the truth. You have a myth, and we're gonna give you the truth." So one of them is that the patient experience is not really a clinical concern. So it has nothing to do with health. That, that patient interaction, that patient experience, what happens, how you felt about your medical appointment or your hospital stay, isn't, doesn't have anything to do with clinical outcomes. So uh, the fact <laughs> is, is that the excellent patient experience, including clearer communication and better coordination of your care, actually drives better clinical outcomes, better health outcomes. So higher patient satisfaction um, with, the, with the patient care reduces readmission rates in a hospital. Um, it is associated with better adherence, more compliance with, you know, your regimen of care, uh, lower mortality rates in hospitals. Uh, And patient centered care also decreases, you know, too much utilization of unnecessary health care because you understand your choices and you can choose appropriately. And it can lower costs, which is your out of pocket costs and your provider's costs that, you know, they're absorbing as well. So um, the patient experience is very important. Um, You know, patient's experience is something that's outside of the doctor's control. That's not true. (laughs) <laughs> well, there are, there are apparently some doctors who thinks you know. It's the fact is that physicians hugely influence the most important. They're the driver of their experience. So we, you know, we work in a medical group and we know that people get frustrated if they can't see the physician. Right. You know, it's like you want to, when you go to the basketball game, you want to see the, a, you know, you want to see the A-list players. You want to see the guys that make all the big shots. You don't want pops sitting. The doc is, you know, that he is the, the big, has the biggest influence on the experience. Um they, Doctors sometimes don't believe that they have the time to spare for longer patient communications and interactions, and the fact is is that it's it's about quality and not quantity. And the example they gave is the doctor who doesn't knock and just comes in the room. They have a terse, you know, inner exchange and not really a conversation At, with the doctor who knocks on the door. Hi, my name's Doctor So and So. You know, tell me about what's most important to you in seven seconds you've totally changed the patient experience cool so tie it's the quality of the conversation so i mean it was interesting to hear it is it, interesting. that um, some doctors don't think that they're a part of the formula of happiness in the clinical world when they are, you know, they're the superstars. They're the drivers of the whole thing.
1: And it brings patients back.
2: And it brings patients back, absolutely. Uh, You know, and in in our world, that's exactly what we want to see is the patients coming back. You know, they were saying that the the physician is the influencer-in-chief. So the physician really, the other people in the clinic, you know, the way they look up to the docs, the doc is friendly and interested in the patient, then... They'll you be. know they're going to be that. Uh, you're going to see that interaction, and they're going to emulate it. So you know you want to cast a good shadow when you're a doctor. It's
1: interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that. I like that. Well, we're going to talk in just a moment with a couple of folks who know a lot about living with dying. We're going to talk about hospice and ways in which Katie Ortlip and Yana Beacham got together to write a really useful book. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial. This is Caregiver SOS on air, on nine thirty a.m. The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, a nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio?
3: You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life.
1: And it's something that uh, you're newer to, WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio?
3: Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home.
1: Nurse practitioner, Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 930 a.m. The answer, be there. Well, we are so pleased you have stuck with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, again with our co-host, Carol Zernial, And we've been promising, and we like to deliver when we promise things. We're going to be talking with the co-authors of Living With Dying, A Complete Guide for Caregivers. Yana Beecham will join us in a few minutes, but we're going to kick it off uh, with Katie Ortlip, who is a hospice expert on share care. And the book itself looks like a great how-to book. Uh, with all kinds of instructions for caregivers and uh, care recipients. I want to start, if I may, Carol and uh, Katie, uh, with the introduction, just the first paragraph. It's a practical, easy-to-use manual for all you caregivers who don't have the time to fix yourselves a meal, take a shower, let alone read a book. You who have so many health, legal, and daily care questions that you're utterly overwhelmed. You need help but don't know where to get it or how to pay for it. Like you... I was in a constant state of high anxiety when my 90 year old father was diagnosed with bone cancer, and that is Yana speaking. There, unlike you, I had my friend Katie Ortlip, who is on our Caregiver SOS on Air hotline. She guided me through the final months, days, weeks, and minutes of my dad's life. Katie, welcome to Caregiver SOS on Air.
4: Thanks. It's great to great to be here.
1: How did you get involved in in the whole aspect of Caregiving, I know you and Yana apparently were friends. Uh, you're a clinical social worker. Uh, was caregiving uh-huh. a focus for you in your studies?
4: You know, I started off as a nurse, um, you know, many years ago. And then I, uh, I you know, became a social worker. And I, I just gravitated to hospice. It's really hard to say exactly why. But when you, when you get in the field of hospice, um, it really becomes a calling. And I've, I've, I'm now going on 27 years of doing hospice um so it's it's really more more of a calling than a job to me, but i've always been the caregiver type of person you know starting way way back when I you yeah. was I was a nurse's aide and I became a nurse and now a social worker so it's always been something that has been a part of who I am
2: Well, talk a little bit I mean when I look back at the last twenty five years um, and hospice mm-hmm. uh, the way it started out and the way you know, the hospice benefit is today, uh, which kind of Mm -hmm. says something right there. Uh, Talk a little bit about how has hospice changed from when you started?
4: It's really, well, when we started this hospice about 27, 28 years ago, it was a new thing. It had just been Medicare approved. There's now a Medicare benefit uh, for, for hospice care specifically, which is covered 100%. And it just it just took off, and it, it took a lot of education. We still need a lot of education. Um, a lot of people still aren't aware of what we provide. But over the years, there's just been a lot of education with physicians, with hospitalists. Um, the way the medical system is now, they don't want people in the hospital to die. Uh, years ago, more and more people died in hospitals. Now, they they they, unless someone's not you know, having active symptoms and they need to be in the hospital, they really want them out. And so it's really, everything is geared more toward home care. And um, like, like our hospice, we started with maybe with 15, 20 patients. Now we're up to almost 150. So, but it's taken a lot of work on our part in educating the community, educating people that, that hospice is out there, that we can help them. Keep their loved ones at home, and we can provide a lot of support
2: and teaching. Well, so well, it's it's really grown uh, grown incredibly. You know, our work with caregivers at the Wellman Charitable Foundation. I still routinely hear of the families where someone is on hospice one day, one week. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, right at the very, very end. Um, is this bad luck, yeah. or is it a communication that's not happening quite early enough?
4: I think generally we, our referrals are too late, and we'd like to have a hospice people on hospice much sooner because we can help a lot more. Um, but hospice, again, has kind of has a bad <laughs> reputation. Um, and people so a lot of people feel like you can only go on hospice when you're actively dying, you know your, your last few days, and that's so unsure that's one of the myths about hospice. You know you can go on hospice when you're still active, you're still traveling, you're, you know, but you have a diagnosis that you know is going to get worse and that that will eventually you'll die from. So a lot of times it's because people are afraid that if they go in hospice, it means they have to admit they're dying, that they are dying. Sometimes physicians are a little bit um, uneasy, making a hospice referral too soon. Um, and sometimes we truly get people the last few days because something sudden does happen, and, and they, they maybe they were fine, they had a stroke or a heart attack. So sometimes we just can't help but get them late. But I think generally we could get people much sooner. I think if they, and and some physicians had better knowledge about the hospice criteria, that we can take people on six months, approximately six months, before they die, and we can keep them longer. Katie, stay with us.
1: Stay with us just a minute. I want to remind folks who may have just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zernial, and we're Talking on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline with Katie Ortlip. She is a clinical social worker, a former nurse, and she and uh, Yana Beecham co-authored Living with Dying, a complete guide for caregivers. And Katie, uh, let's assume there are folks listening who really don't know what hospice is. They know Uh generically, but don't understand it. What does hospice do for folks?
4: Hospice, the criteria to be on hospice is that you have approximately six months or less, um, you know, certified by a doctor, uh, and you no longer want life-prolonging or aggressive treatment. So if you have cancer, you've already done the chemo and radiation, or maybe there's no treatment options. You want to focus on comfort. You don't want to be your life-prolonged, but you really want to take control of the time you have left, and you want to be home. You want to do what you want to do. You want to live life uh, fully. And what, we have a team of people that can that visit wherever you're living. You can be in a foster home, your own home, assisted living, uh, whatever living situation. And you have a team of people who can help you depending on what you need. So every you know every patient has a nurse, social worker, a spiritual counselor, and then we can bring in, bring in other people as needed. You know, for example, in our hospice in Oregon, we have a massage therapists. We have musicians that come in, you know, we have a harpist that will go play for people. We have different kinds of, you know, physical um, Reiki therapy. And and we also have uh, nurses' aides to provide bathing. And we have a volunteer program to provide respite. So it's very, very, um, it's, it's just very comprehensive. And we really, really focus on what the patient and family want with their what their wishes and goals are. So it's really, to me, it's, uh, it's really more about living than dying. Well, and it's really I, about helping people live well.
2: I have to um, say how much hospice did for our, our family. Both my mother-in-law and my mother had Alzheimer's, and both of them were in hospice care um, mm. up until they died. And it was the hospice folks. So one was hospice at home, and they came mm-hmm. to my mother-in-law's house every day and you know, took very good care of her, we, the the pastor came, the the spiritual guide came, you know, and, and it was a very mm-hmm. positive experience. And then my mother was actually in assisted living, which I think a lot of people don't realize that hospice could come in and they were provided that one-on-one attention that the facility couldn't do. We all know yes. that there's not enough yes. staffing in a facility. And they could get her to take a shower when the assisted living, the memory care unit, had difficulty. I mm-hmm. mean, it was, mm-hmm. uh, it was a lifesaver for us because the hospice team, you know, the social workers came in, got down at my mother's level, held her hand, and they were her best friend immediately. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That, that whole attitude, I think, is so important. And I, and I do hope that people realize that um, that the benefit can go wherever the person is, as you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, even in skilled nursing facilities, even in nursing homes. Right, and it's, it really is, like I say, you've got a team that's that's there for your loved one, which is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were talking about the book, Living with Dying, uh, mm-hmm. and I, we have a copy of it, and I looked at it, and as Ron mentioned, it really is a how-to guide. But yeah, I think there's, yeah. there's a chapter that's in the book about care, care self-care. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about why you have a chapter on self-care for the caregiver. Well,
4: because I feel that caregivers are often neglected or they, they self-neglect. They, how often do I go into a home and look at a caregiver and say, Did you eat today? How much sleep did you get last night? Because when you're caring for someone you love, you often forget about your own needs and you're caring for yourself. So I think self-care is something we all, even myself as a caregiver, I have to constantly be remembering to take care of myself and take time for myself. Otherwise, I won't be able to help others that's what we tell family members if you don't take care of yourself you're not going to be able to take care of your loved one so we have a chapter that's called taking time for yourself and we have some really practical suggestions on, on even small things that you can do to care for yourself um, i felt that we felt it was important yana and i to to include that in a whole chapter not just having a little paragraph at the end of the book on self care but really trying to trying to emphasize how important we felt that is um and the book is meant really, the whole book is meant for caregivers to help alleviate their stress and to give them confidence and in education so that they feel they can do this. Because it could be a very daunting role, um, caring for someone who is dying, your loved one who is dying at home. It's, um, it's pretty scary.
2: Well, I think, you know, what I what I like about the chapter on taking time for yourself is you really do provide good tips for the caregiver, not just for themselves, but how to help themselves, you know, the, to get in the right frame of mind, to hire help, um, mm-hmm. you know, bring people mm-hmm. into the home, looking at burnout. Uh, and so that's a, it's it's a very good chapter. Tell us, Shane, about the... Giving people uh, permission that to, to get help. They don't have to do it.
4: All by themselves.
1: Tell us in about 30 seconds, because we're going to jump to Yana uh, Beecham in just a moment. Uh, how did you get involved with helping her with her dad?
4: Well, we were neighbors for years, and Yana, you know, she was one of those rare friends that was really interested in my work. Huh. And, you know, it could be a conversation stopper. Oh, I work for hospice, you know. Right. But she always wanted to know, like, oh, you know, what was that death like? And, and then her father was diagnosed, and I became the social worker um, for him with, with the rest of our team. So we kind of, we decided to write this book together because there was nothing out there like it. And I, and so, and I know the writer and I have this, this knowledge. So as he was dying, we started the book. Like we'd sit at the kitchen table together with him lying in the other room and I'd spend time with them and, and we would be started, we started the project and then it took us about five years to write it. Um, but we did it. So it was, we, we, you know, we, we were a really, really good team because she had the writing skills and I had the the experience. So it, it really worked out. It was a really wonderful experience, even though at times it, it became very, it was
2: difficult, uh, but we did it. So Katie, thank you. And if people want to find you, you're the hospice expert on Care, which is Dr. Oz's online health and wellness platform.
4: Yeah. Or you can go to our website, which is actually a lot more current because it's it's really based on our book, and that is livingwithdying.com.
2: Great. Thank well, you so Katie, much. thank
1: you so much. We're going to talk in just a moment with Yana uh, Beecham, and we thank you for being with us.
5: Oh, well, thank you. It's been Take great. Take care.
1: Bye-bye. Katie Ortlip and she and Yana uh, Beecham are co-authors of a uh, fascinating self-help manual, Living with Dying, a Complete Guide for Caregivers. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerni, and we're going to welcome Yana uh, Beecham to our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline in just a moment. We had a great conversation uh, talking in, oh, I guess, 13 minutes or so with Katie Ortlip. And we're now welcoming on board our Caregiver SOS on Air hotline. We're going to talk with uh, Yana Beacham, who is the co-author of Living with Dying, A Complete Guide for Caregivers. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zurniel. And Yana Beecham, welcome to Caregiver SOS on Air.
5: Thank you, guys.
1: <laughs> and we appreciate you being here. Tell us a bit about... Uh, your dad and uh, your responsibilities as a caregiver, and how Katie helped you.
5: Oh, okay. Um, uh, well, my dad, my dad was uh, he was he he, he was uh, he had, had prostate cancer, and it, it metastasized to his bones, and he was in absolute agony when it you know showed up there, and um, I was a lunatic running around trying to, you know, help him somehow, you know, dragging him from doctor to doctor, and they give him these uh, pain medicines that would, you know, by the time we went to leave the office, his knees were buckling, and we couldn't take, you know, he couldn't walk, he couldn't talk. And so uh, we, when the doctor suggested we go on hospice, Katie, oh, before that, Katie be, being my friend and neighbor and my dad's friend, said you know why don't you not do those really giant painkillers why don't you just try some Advil like give him four Advil and see if that helps and it did <laughs> it was just that the um, it reduced the swelling and it stopped the pressure on the nerve and but anyway and then right after that Katie uh you know then we went on hospice and um uh, and uh and our my life changed Like I said, I was a lunatic running around. I was frantic. I was, you know, yelling at my parents, trying to get them to hurry up and and get to the doctor. And once hospice came in, it was sort of like um, everything changed. Within 24 hours, all the right medical equipment came. Now,
1: you have an an amazing background, none of which has to do with caregiving, so that you were really a fish out of water. Your experience includes... A National Geographic Science Encyclopedia. You've done writing for uh, children's television workshop and Sesame Street and a whole lot more. Uh, uh-huh. And then suddenly you find yourself overwhelmed.
5: Right. I couldn't. I, I. have to tell you when when I I did everything wrong and and that's what this book is great. I was just. I mean the, the book really um, offers all the information that essentially I learned through Katie. Um, and, and it's mostly about self-care. In order to be a good caregiver, you have to take care of yourself, which I didn't do. I immediately gave up everything that made me happy. I stopped walking with friends. I I uh, didn't eat right. I was frantically running over to my parents, constantly worried about them. And um, I gained weight. I didn't exercise. I didn't see my friends. And I really, really don't think I helped my parents that much by being such a nutball. So, um, so, um, so I think I kind of represent all those caregivers out there who know nothing,
2: (laughs) and you're suddenly
5: poof, you're a caregiver. Well, I think Um, that
2: you've done a great job of describing the experience of a lot of caregivers. You're Uh, not alone. The running around and the flailing and the you know, but but you were mentioning that you called hospice, and all of a sudden, the right medical equipment magically appeared. Uh, it made Katie was talking to us about the team so did you have a team of people that entered your oh, life yes.
5: actually yes Katie was, it was what, my, my, my dad every time she entered the room he'd sing there she is uh, <laughs> he loved Katie but uh, he loved his team our nurse was Chris who continued to be a friend and and, and up till my my, mo- my mom died this last April and she Chris continued to come over and see my mom and me and anyway it was it was i didn't have to pick up a phone and try to figure out who to dial to get that medical that bedside commode or or anything it was just all there they came in we still hired caregivers but they even gave advice on that you know to come in and help occasionally um it was just instant relief and instant friends and by the end you know as as people get closer to death they're, they're their social circle get smaller and and he, he, we were all quite happy with our and my father was very happy with his very small circle of friends which were hospice and my husband myself and my mom <laughs> you know
1: now i noticed and, that yeah, uh, katie yeah. mentioned that you two started talking about writing a book she's the expert you're the incredible writer and that she had <laughs> said something along the lines of i've always wanted to write a book Death for Dummies.
5: Yes. (laughs) Well, you know, Katie was next door to me, and and I was fascinated fascinated by her job. She would come home and tell me that today was a good death. And, you know, um, I would pump her for all the information I could to find out what's a good death, because I want that. And, And she was really informative, and the information she would give me, I mean, simple things like, People equate feeding patients with love, and and they and they force people to eat who who are ill, and and their body is automatically doing what it's supposed to do. It's it's it can't you know it can't digest, so it's not it's not um, you know you're not hungry, and people should listen to that message, and they don't. They think they're my mom thought she was being. Very successful by getting my father to eat, you know, a baked potato with steak and with some ice cream, and you know, and and in, when in reality he didn't want to eat anything, and 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 it does more damage to a person than, than than helping in any way. So just that bit of information she gave me right off the top, I said this needs to be in a book because people don't know this. And it's... that's when she told me that she wanted to write a test for companies, and I said, that's it. I'm the dummy, and
1: let's do it. (laughs) Now, for those of you who just joined us and wondering what the heck we're talking about, we're delighted to have you on board, (laughs) Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernil. Yana Beacham is with us, and she co-authored Living with Dying, a complete guide for caregivers in a way in which you can ease yourself into the struggle of trying to help a loved one move on.
2: So, Yana, you mentioned um, that the number one issue for your father was that he had this horrible pain um, and she was able to suggest the Advil. What would have happened if he had taken the heavy-duty industrial painkillers? What happened? What what would have happened? Why was the Advil a better choice in that particular situation?
5: it, it It was a good choice right at the start. You know, and then it, then we eventually up, you know, he went to morphine and, and, Mm. you know, but, but what happened was the painkillers they were giving him just made him, you know, he kept trying to leave the house through the fireplace.
2: Yeah, so he was just loopy. He, it was too much.
5: He was just goofy, and I thought, uh oh, this is it. This is where we're, this is our life now. And then to find out, no, it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to be over medicated. And, um, I think the problem was we were, you know, going to doctors that, didn't know him or i I don't know it but but it was good that we started with that and that's a that's good for i think your listeners to know that hospice comes in and they don't necessarily suddenly pump morphine in everybody they they address what a patient needs you know to to keep them living the best life they can so we started with that for quite a while
2: well, and I think and, it's uh, interesting in your, yeah. t- in your title, and I heard Katie say it and I've heard you talk about it, you always say, living the best life, and your title, living with dying, and so many people only hear the dying part, and, and not thinking about you are living all up until that last moment, um, and so, you know, for, when looking at, back at your father, your time in hospice with your father, what was it, how did that change the way he lived? Uh, he lived a stress-free
5: existence, which is, and, and it was full of joy, and also, you know, he he was a little afraid, but I think the fact that, well, Katie was has always been clear and answers any questions anybody need, wants to know, so what happens to your body, you know, as, the, as you get closer to the end, she was really, you know, direct about it, and, um, uh, so he, I, he had a really great finish. He was happy. The last thing he did, he looked at me and went, "My daughter," and he was just smiling at me. And he listened to this music he would play. Take him home from Layman's. That was his, you know, sort of theme song huh. at the end, uh, or bringing him home. I think it's called. Yeah, and I shouldn't know it. I heard it no um But Katie, Katie, actually, this is this is what's so great. She. The best thing she did was make me understand that there is a system, that the body does have a way to die itself, and it's all for the best. So she, as Dad was getting closer to death, she was pointing out, explaining to me what was happening to his body. She showed me the rash that went around the knee, and she was, we were standing there, and she was, you know, Telling Dad, he was doing a good job. My dad's name's Charlie. Good job, Charlie. You're doing so good. And and we all felt really happy. And my mom was there, too. And Katie just was sort of a sherpa, you know, guiding us to the end. She had Mom come in and say some things to my dad by herself. And she talked me through what would happen afterwards and when people, you know, that we don't need to call um, the funeral home to come right away. You can wait as long as you want to and we we had fun picking out you know what would, he would love to you know as his last outfit he was military and um, he also he he was known for his berets so we had a beret on him and and we toasted him with my mom it was it was just a really great finish and 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 my mom died this April and because she had gone through that with my father she. Um, she when she, I I went over and she was really really ill. Uh, I mean she I said, "Mom, I think you've got pneumonia and we should go to the hospital." And she said, "You know, she was ninety three. I'm ready to go. I I don't want to go to the hospital. I, I I'm good." And so we because um, I called the kids and had them FaceTime her and say goodbye to her and she she was almost ecstatic because someone was listening to what she wanted and um she got to have control when i think part of the reason she was ready to go is she just felt at 93 she didn't have any control of her life you know she couldn't drive all those things but her ending was wonderful because she said goodbye to the kids she gave them her wisdom um and and she i got in bed with her that night and held her hand and she said there's nothing better than holding your daughter's hand when you go and she Years before, when my dad died, six years before, she wouldn't have been that confident about talking about dying. It's something you wouldn't even mention. Then she wouldn't, you know, and I said, well, how do you want to go? She wouldn't even talk about it. But through the course of writing the book and through the course of the experience with dad, she saw that, you know, she felt comfortable talking about it.
1: So, and it made huge changes, so it, huge changes in you as well.
5: Yes. Yes, I would. Everything. I mean, I, I I don't know Katie. I since you since I get to talk about my partner, <laughs> she she's <laughs> she's kind of a Wonder Woman. But she here's what I I guess the, the biggest lesson I learned from Katie is um, that to take what what you can give to the patient is um, time. Let them know you have time. And time is just, and the way to show that, and this is what Katie always does when she visits patients. She pulls a chair up right next to them, almost nose to nose. And if there's no chair, she sits on, you know, the edge of a coffee table or whatever. But she always, or kneels by their bed. But she's face to face with them, and she looks like she has 10 hours to spend with them. There's no rush. There's a calm, easy feeling and she's just got she's just there for the person. So my big lesson from Katie was sit down.
2: <laughs>
5: Cuz a lot of times I would go into my mom's room and to talk to her and I'd be standing in the doorway like I've got to go. Any minute now I'm going to be running out leaving you. So you can ask me one question and then I'm going. Right. But um but yeah. I've but what as soon as you sit down they go, "Oh, you're taking time to listen to me." That's cool. And yeah. That's yeah, a, a, it was great, and also listening. Katie's the champ
1: listener. Yeah, hey, I got to stop you <laughs> right there, and I want to thank you for coming on, and, and I hope we can get you back on again. Uh, it's a fascinating <laughs> story. The book, "Living with Dying," and where can folks get it if they'd like to get
5: it? Uh, on Amazon dot com. Cool. And you could just yeah Google yeah "Living with Dying: A Complete Guide for Caregivers."
2: Thank you yeah. so much. Well, Yana, thank you
5: for talking to me, Yana Beacham. <laughs> thank
1: you, and. Uh, pass on thanks to Katie as well, and when the whole show is available, we'll send you a podcast and you can... Hear what Katie said about you.
0: Oh, that's, you ever wonder yeah,
1: what, right. what you can learn? <laughs> in, <laughs> Thanks, listening okay. to Wellmed Bye-bye. Radio. Yeah, to be here. I'm Ron in, Aaron, and, uh, along with our co-host, co-host Katie Cora Juke is here, nurse our practitioner. A really what can folks learn cool from Wellmed Radio. Book. Book. You know, we talk about Aaron, a lot of things, things such as chronic Dr. disease Heisman Heisman management, 10, how to
3: manage your diabetes, 9, your answer. blood pressure. But we also talk about social issues, such as what Wellmed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life.
1: And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio?
3: Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home.
1: Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively. On 930 AM, the answer. Be there. Thank you for sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. We flip to Take 10 a program that follows each and every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs in which we kick around the topic for 10 minutes, thus take 10, with Carol Zirniel, our co-host, and Dr. Jamie Heisman, who joins us, who is a nationally known psychotherapist and expert in caregiving as well as addictions. And, Dr. Jamie, nice to talk with you. Carol's going to set up this
2: topic. All right. wonderful. So, hi, Jamie. Um, today we wanted to talk about... Um, uh, we, we've we done an interview with a caregiver who was afraid of the person that she was caring for. He was violent and threatening, and she could not find placement for him uh, because the facilities were afraid of him as well. So what what do you do when you're afraid of your your loved one?
6: You know, Carol, this is a great topic because it happens way too often, and it's pretty much kept silent, like out of shame and stigma. Caregivers just don't want to talk about it. I think it's also a dirty secret in terms of skilled nursing and the way we actually work with residences for seniors of this type of aggressive behavior, which is not really well. So as a caregiver, I'm sure she had to learn a lot of techniques, if you will, for stabilizing. But basically what we do as clinical social workers for crisis stabilization and kind of triage in some ways. But at the same time, She had to plan for, you know, him feeling assured, listened to, uh, in some ways have some measure of trust. Otherwise, we all know that the issue will be exacerbated and the aggression will pop out.
2: Well, and and she mentioned that she felt like he blamed her for his getting this disease, this brain disease.
6: You know, that's an incredible jump off point for us on this show, which we talk about often. You know, Miguel Ruiz, uh, who wrote The Four Agreements, which is a fabulous transformational group, uh, a book that everybody on the phone should get, uh, talked about the agreements that be impeccable with your word, don't assume, you know, and don't take things personal. And the fourth is do your best. When he said don't take things personal, she obviously has to, and we as caregivers have to be able to separate the actual condition, the issue the actual aggressive health concern or whatever's creating the agitation or aggression from our loved one who is also there. So in not taking it personal, you know, we can actually separate our loved one, if we can, from the disease and act accordingly. Because it's going to trigger all the issues of our family of origin if we think that the person is talking directly to
1: us. Well, she did not personalize it. And, and in fact, Carol commented to her that it's just amazing and so wonderful that uh, you're not taking any of these behaviors personally. So it was the disease, right. not the husband.
2: So she would say... absolutely. And she, yes, go ahead. I was just going to say, she, she said she would always ask herself, what if it was me? What would I want to happen if this was me that had this behavior?
6: You know, and I think what she would want to happen is probably what clinical social workers do in their in their life, if you will, their professional life, is that she needs to allow, obviously, her loved one and caregivers in a similar situation is to keep as much control of their life as possible. She needs to, obviously, reassure them and connect with them and bear witness and listen to them as opposed to reacting and becoming oppositional and, and scared. And she has to do so many sorts of, of, of actual practice skills that we do in terms of building a therapeutic bond with her loved one and being extraordinarily resourceful, like a quarterback of a team, and making sure that she has
0: a support network
1: all around her. Well, one thing she did that was just amazing, we mentioned it to you briefly off the air, Uh, one day the postman came and uh, she begged him to come in, sit with her husband for three minutes so she could take a shower. She hadn't had a shower in, in quite a while, and he agreed to do that. And when she came back out of the shower, he said, you know, I can see this is really very difficult for you. I'm I'm happy to come back uh, and, and sit and read to your husband while you take care of personal stuff.
2: So if he ever got ahead on his route, he would say, you know, I'm ahead of my route today. Do you need a few minutes?
1: And he, he did it several how, times, she said.
6: How resourceful. How wonderful. And obviously, you know, necessity is the mother of invention here, so... We, we just had a conversation yesterday about the integration of behavioral health in our medical clinics. And somebody said, and I'm obviously a big caregiver proponent, get the caregiver to sign, get them part of the medical record, get them as an ally, whether they're biological or they're a family of choice. And one person said, look, my patient lives under a tree, I mean, I mean under a tree, lays there, goes there every day, is homeless, and has nobody. And I said, you know what? once you really bond with this person, I bet you they have somebody, a coordinator of a homeless shelter, somebody out there in the street that they'll actually bring into the, the healthcare process that can act as an ally. So we have to be very, just like her, creative in this process.
2: Well, let me ask you a question. If a caregiver really has someone who's living in the home who the, she believes is a danger to themselves and others, including herself as the caregiver, what kind of options does a person have? Uh, in terms of immediate danger and maybe over the long term?
6: Well, you know, this is a real tragedy in our society because any long-term care issues have been kind of preempted, if you will, by in the 80s of deinstitutionalization, where we actually closed up any center that could on an ongoing basis help somebody with, with constant, consistent violence and aggression. Um, obviously, she needs to really connect with the, the uh, Area Agency on Aging, number one, and, and you know that for sure. You could probably connect them locally easy enough. Um, but there, obviously, she's going to find places, if you will, or, or support groups or people that have gone through the same issue. Immediately, uh, she and hopefully caregivers around her, whether they're family or not, will make the physician and any licensed clinician aware so that if he is a danger to her or others, immediately they can actually Baker Act him. Because let's face it, when he's in an episodic violent state, uh, there's nothing or nobody can reason with him. He doesn't have real strong practice skills, and even then we can't. So having, you know, if you will, professionals on call to be able to do the Baker Act, uh, and also be able to tell your local authorities a little bit about what's going on, so they too are ready.
1: All right, hang on just a minute. I want to come back to you in a moment and find out whether the Baker Act means making water boiled bagels or, <laughs> or something else. If you listen to Caregiver <laughs> right. SOS on airs. Take uh, ten on nine thirty a.m. The answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, talking with Doctor Jamie Heisman. So, what is the Baker Act?
6: Well, unfortunately, you're right. That's a, a geographic specific law in the state of Florida. Where if somebody's a danger to themselves or others, there's a 72-hour hold that any policeman, licensed social worker, psychologist, or physician can actually get somebody to a very safe uh, psychiatric hospital, if you will. Or if it's a medical condition, they're on a one-to-one basis. And every 72 hours, uh, you can t- do the condition, do a biopsychosocial immediately, and see if that person is at all able to go outside and be discharged.
1: We have if that. Not, we have that in Texas. You do so. You can explain it to your uh, listeners in Texas.
2: What well, same thing? Same thing. It's the Baker Act. So yeah, same idea. Oh, it is the Baker Act, right? So uh, I thought
6: the bakers were from Florida. Great.
2: <laughs> so um, the good news is that you can you can call nine one one. Let them know that your loved one is having um, a violent episode and have that person physically removed and held for up to seventy two hours, like three days.
6: Absolutely. And in that time, you, you obviously can't take a respite. You have to make sure you have, if you will, an informal or formal network of, of people around you, agencies around you that are supportive, that know of the situation. Obviously, staff securing a violent person is very difficult, even in the best of psychiatric hospitals. So if you don't have that support network in place and you don't have, you know, people that are ready to assist and help, um, danger can result.
1: Now, she took to locking his door at night locked him in a bedroom.
2: Mm,
6: wow. Yeah, which you is know, that's a tough deal. Yeah.
1: It is a tough deal, but she was afraid he'd kill her.
6: Absolutely. You know, this is really, again, a, a huge societal need, again, for better uh, residential facilities for precisely this type of patient. We really have to go to our congressman and really talk about elder care in a very authentic and real way. Because this particular person doesn't need to be locked into a place. Obviously, it's not going to help them. It certainly is a great strategy for her having nothing else. It's survival. But we do need, yeah, survival, exactly. But we do need uh, placements where this can be met in a much more
1: therapeutic way. Carol, you get the last word.
2: Well, I would just like to say that if you are a caregiver um, and you are in a situation where you do feel like you're unsafe, you you do need to call 911. I would say do not hesitate if you feel that you're in danger, Um, and it may be that this happens over and over again, uh, and we we would be um, happy to work with you um, at Caregiver SOS uh, if you cannot find uh, assistance in your local area or want to work on this issue.
1: Jamie, thank you. Carol, thank you. I'm Ron Aaron. This was Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 a.m. The Answer.
0: You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net and join your hosts Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on 930 a.m. The Answer.